This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. Good evening and welcome to this evening's uh, World Beyond the Headlines program. Tonight's program um, is part of, um, tonight's Global Voices program is part of the World Beyond the Headlines series. Um, this series presents prominent speakers and organizes roundtable discussion groups and special interest conferences and seminars. Uh, this popular series is a collaborative project of International House, and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and the Seminary Co-op Bookstores with support from the uh, McCormick Tribune Foundation. The program brings journalists and scholars together to consider major international news stories and how these stories are covered. Tonight's program is a panel discussion with author Shabnam Hashmi along with Professor Stephen Wilkinson and Mona Mehta of the University of Chicago speaking on the sixth anniversary of the Gujarat riots. Tonight's program is also co-sponsored by the South Asia Language and Area Center and the Committee on Southern Asian Studies, along with Chicago Society. Our speakers tonight include Shabnam Hashmi. She is Managing Trustee and Executive Secretary of Act Now for Harmony and Democracy, which is among the foremost figures uh, she is among the foremost figure um, in the political battles around secularism and religious fundamentalism in India today. Her organization was founded in 2003 in the wake of the Gujarat riots and aims to intervene in the defense of democracy, secularism, and justice. Stephen Wilkinson is Associate Professor of Political Science here at the University of Chicago. His main interests are in ethnicity and nationalism, patronage, politics, and the politics of distribution, and the long-term effects of colonialism and governance <coughs> on governance and conflict. He draws upon his continuing research interests in the society and politics of South Asia. Mona Mehta is a PhD student in the Department of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Her research work examines how a multitude of political procedures and civic spaces that social scientists consider to be consti <coughs> constitutive of democracy have become implicated in a non-democratic politics of exclusion, marginalization, and violence in the western Indian state of Gujarat. She recently completed 18 months of fieldwork in Gujarat that includes interviews, archival research, and observation of everyday civic and political activities. They'll uh, be speaking to us tonight for about uh, 30 minutes or so, and then we'll have time for um, question and answer from the audience. We also invite you to um, examine the, the books which are available for sale um, out in the hallway, uh, sponsored by the Seminary Co-op Bookstores. So welcome all of you to this evening's program.
go first. I, I fear you may be in for more than 30 minutes collectively. But, uh, um, I thought I could probably uh, best start off by um, introducing people to the political context of Gujarat and the riots, given that I'm sure people come in with very different levels of knowledge about contemporary uh, Indian politics. Um, this is a picture uh, taken during the riots in Ahmedabad, uh, the leading industrial city in Gujarat, in uh, 2002, during uh, the massive attacks on the 9% Muslim minority in the state of Gujarat. Um, these riots followed an earlier attack on a train of Hindus who had taken part in a pilgrimage to North India organized by right-wing uh, Hindu organizations. Uh, and then the train was returning to Gujarat and had stopped in the town of Godra when it was attacked in circumstances that are still quite mysterious. Um, in the original attacks at Godra, somewhere between 57 and 59 people appear to have died. Uh, demonstrations and strikes were immediately uh, called by Hindu right-wing organizations. Yes? Speak louder, yes. speak closer to the Yeah. Um, demonstrations and strikes were called by Hindu right-wing um, organizations. And then in the large-scale riots that followed, which lasted intermittently for around two months, uh, anywhere from 850 to 2,000 people, depending on which figures you follow, uh, were killed, and tens of thousands were displaced from their homes. As in virtually all the major post-independence uh, communal riots in India, Muslims were disproportionately the victims. Um, as the police and administration in Gujarat, with some uh, notable exceptions to be true, either stood by and let mobs of Hindus attack them, or in some cases were directly involved in the riots. Uh, the BJP government in the state was uh, deeply complicit in these riots. Uh, for instance, it transferred 27 officials uh, for essentially doing their job uh, out of their positions. Uh, during the riots, and uh, you can go to Human Rights Watch reports and other reports that demonstrate the degree of complicity of the state government in this. Now, I want to be clear here and say that while the Hindu right has been very heavily involved in anti-minority <laughs> agitation over the past 20 years and anti-minority violence, the Congress Party has at various times also been involved in fomenting riots in India. Uh, as have other parties. Uh, major riots in Ahmedabad in 1969 happened on Congress's watch, in Muradabad in 1980, Merit in 1987, Ranchi in 1967. So lots of parties have at various times been involved in, um, or politicians from various parties have uh, at various times been involved in anti-minority violence. To understand why the 2002 riots took place, um, I think it helps to consider the electoral situation in Gujarat in early 2002 uh, within the state. Um, the key thing here is that things were looking pretty grim for the incumbent BJP government in 19, uh, that had been elected for the first time in 1998 in the state of Gujarat. Uh, in India, the state governments are elected uh, and they must serve out um, 
no more than five years. So you have to call an election before your five years is up. So the BJP government elected in 1998 in the state knew it had to call an election sometime in 2002 or 2003. And things looked bad for the party because in a whole series of by-elections that had taken place, uh, they lost. Uh, they lost important municipal elections. There have been large swings against them. They had done badly in terms of um, you know, their uh, people's perception of how well they, they ran the state. And uh, a new chief minister had come in looking to mobilize the electorate around uh, Hindutva, Hindunas. Uh, and this is Narendra Modi, who's still the chief minister of the state today. Um, after the riots, the elections... Uh, the, the incumbent BJP wants to hold elections immediately. It stopped from doing that. Eventually, they're held in December 2002. And it's a crushing victory for the BJP. So large swings against the party prior to the riots. And after the riots take place, large swings uh, in favor of the BJP. There's evidence during the campaign of uh, a lot of deliberate spreading of rumors by uh, members of the BJP and Hindu organizations like the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, the VHP, and sympathetic papers to alarm voters over the perceived Muslim threat, to try and increase solidarity behind the BJP against this perceived Muslim threat. Modi says, had nothing happened at Godra, would people have hurled even one stone, and only a vote for the BJP can protect us. The election rhetoric is clearly used by the BJP to increase the salience of the communal dimension in politics, to play the race card, as we might say, in the US, over other kinds of dimensions of politics. One candidate at an election meeting in Lunavada constituency says, the election's being fought, one BJP candidate, the election is being fought not on issues like development, but on security. The election issue is Godra. Uh, at another election meeting, uh, somebody says, um, this is not a Congress versus BJP election, it's Hindus versus Muslims. Party workers interviewed by documentary filmmaker Rakesh Sharma stated that if the BJP Chief Minister Narendra Modi lost, quote, they, i.e. Muslims, will rule. There's a lot of survey data to suggest that um, the scale of the BJP swing was indeed due to people becoming very concerned about uh, the riots. So BJP voters were more likely in surveys to mention riots as the main election issue that drove their vote. There's a higher turnout of BJP supporters energized by riots and fears of the Muslim other. There's a lower turnout of Muslims, in part because many fled, uh, fled the state, and also because polling stations are placed in Hindu areas. And in the aftermath of the riots, Muslims are unlikely to go to these uh, polling areas. And the BJP won a large majority of quote, unaffiliated voters, which were the 11% of the electorate that didn't have a strong party identification in advance. They won, the BJP won 56% of these voters compared to the Congress of 24%. So there's a fair bit of evidence that the elections went the way they did because of the effect of the riots. Um, this is just a chart that I've shown you. This is riot-affected constituencies in um, Gujarat. And this is the scale of the swing to the BJP in red here. This is, a, this is a swing to Congress and varying degrees of swing. Even just eyeballing it, you get some sense that the biggest swings towards the BJP come in the riot-affected areas. If you actually look at this statistically, it seems that an average number of riots gets you around a 9% swing to the BJP. And if you don't have any riots, you get a small swing towards the Congress. Uh, so there's a clear electoral payoff for these kinds of riots. There's also, I think, a clear electoral purpose 
to the riots, because if you look at where the riots take place, they take place in the most competitive constituencies, the ones in which the incumbent party really feels it needs to get the largest electoral boost. Um, and you know, I have a, a paper that explores that in considerable detail. All right. What I'd like to talk about now is the key role of state governments. Now, India is a federal system. It has 28 state governments. And under the Indian constitutional system, even if there's a riot happening, uh, under the Indian constitutional system, state governments have control of law and order. There is no Chicago police force. There is the Illinois police force in Chicago, right? And the Illinois police force is everywhere else within the state. And the central government cannot come and intervene, even if there's a huge conflagration in Chicago, unless the state government invites it in under the Indian Constitution. So it's a federal system in which the states have key responsibility for law and order. Um, you can get a massive riot that takes place a few miles away from an army base, as happened in Ranchi Hatia in 1967, and the army can't do anything unless it's constitutionally asked in, unless the um, president of India imposes emergency rule on a state, which doesn't happen very often, and tends never to happen uh, if the party in power in New Delhi is also the party in power in the state in which violence occurs. There's a real partisan aspect to this. Large-scale communal riots in India, and large-scale communal riots anywhere, in fact, aren't accidents. Right? They happen because of sins of commission or omission by governments, by the state. And that's one key thing that I've learned, I think, about, um, about ethnic violence, communal violence, that the state is a key actor. These aren't just accidental events that you know, pop up. They're ones in which the state is really a key actor. They're the result also of deliberate planning by paramilitary organizations, um, such as you know, in contemporary India on the Hindu right, such as the RSS, the Bajrang Dal, and the VHP. Again, I'm not making the claim that only Hindu right organizations have ever been involved in this. You could look back to the 1940s, and you could look at Muslim organizations that were playing a similar kind of role in North India. But at the moment, it's largely um, Hindu right organizations that are playing this kind of role. We talk about the Gujarat riots. What this map is, is designed to show you that in fact there were many attempts throughout India to foment violence in the aftermath of the Godra um, killings on the train in the strikes. These are precipitating events. These are strikes, demonstrations, sit-downs, uh, marches taken through um, the other community's area in order to protest at the Godra massacres, at the Godra killings. And in the red, you have the total number of casualties that actually take place. So there's two main points that come out of this. One is, of course, that there are attempts to foment violence in large-scale strikes throughout all of India, including in some towns with very long histories of violence where you might expect the spark to lead to an actual fire. The other point, of course, is that the killing is largely concentrated in Gujarat. There are a few deaths outside. Those are, well, I'll go into those in a minute. But all the killing, um, almost all the killing is in Gujarat, not in these other states. So why is this? Well, we know why it is. Oh, by the way, apologies to any South Indians here who recognize that Kozakod and Konbatora transpose. Uh, 
We know exactly why this is. Some state governments actually do a very good job in preventing violence. All the state governments, with the exception of Gujarat in 2002, do a very good job in preventing um, violence. These sparks from turning into fires. Why do they do this? In West Bengal, um, VHP takes out possessions. The state um, police uh, use gunfire and kill one or two people and prevent this from turning into a large-scale riot. In Rajasthan, exactly the same thing happens. The police are very aggressive. Uh, they use deadly force against people who are starting a large-scale riot against Muslims, and it's stopped. In Madhya Pradesh, there are mass roundups of thousands of people who are um, you know, believed to be uh, involved in planning riots. So state governments outside Gujarat do an extremely good job in preventing the violence. In Gujarat, the government is highly complicit in the, in the violence. So the state government is key. Uh, 27 state governments do a very good job during the Gujarat violence. One state government does an extremely bad job, and that's why we now think of it as the Gujarat violence. But it's possible to look at it in this different way and say, it could have been violence over a much wider area, and it wasn't. There's this upside uh, in terms of the other governments and their response to the violence. So that obviously begs the question, why, why this uh, difference? Um, why does the state response uh, differ? Well, Indian state governments are elected governments, and the politicians and elected governments in India, like anywhere, respond to electoral incentives uh, as to whether to protect Muslims or not. And what I've argued in my book is that state governments will protect Muslims and prevent riots when the party in, when, uh, under two main conditions. One, if the party in power relies on substantial numbers of Muslim voters directly, are they an important part of your own support base? That's not terribly surprising. Right? You know. uh, secondly, is if the overall level of political competition in a state is so high, with lots of political parties competing, that the party in power um, then calculates, even if it doesn't need Muslim votes today, the overall party uh, the overall level of party competition is so high that it's very likely to need Muslim votes tomorrow if it forms another coalition, because there are a large number of parties competing. Um, there are a couple of other conditions that basically let this work. Firstly, most of the Indian electorate, most Hindus, don't want anti-Muslim violence. That makes it not very costly for politicians to provide um, security, unless they're seen to be intervening too much uh, against Hindus. And then secondly, Muslims put a very high emphasis on security compared with other kinds of issues. That makes it very easy for Hindu politicians to incorporate them within coalitions because essentially they demand less for their vote than other groups that have a whole range of economic and distributional issues that they ask for in addition to security. Um, in the book, what I did was actually test um, using 30 years of data on um, levels of riots in each Indian state, as well as levels of electoral competition, to see whether this, uh, in fact, came out that way. Uh, this is the number of affected parties in each state. This is about the real level of variation you see in the number of affected parties in Indian states, from about uh, two to eight or nine. Affected parties is a measure that political scientists have come up with to undercount or underweight small parties that are only supported by one man and a dog. Uh, and overweight parties that have significant support. So this is, it, it's a widely used political science measure of this. And you get very substantial reductions um, if you uh, increase the number of parties in each state. If we were to look at the state of Gujarat in 1995, 
compared with the state of Kerala in that year. Gujarat had only about three political parties on using this measure in 1995, and Kerala had uh, seven and a bit. The level of riots would half, the predicted level of riots would half in the state, um, with significant levels of high party competition. What, what I've done here is just superimpose this pattern of riots and deaths that you saw earlier on the levels of party competition in the state. So remember I would say in places with very high levels of party competition, um, you'll have few riots because even if you don't need Muslim voters today, you'll need them tomorrow. Uh, if you have low levels of party competition, then you're in more trouble. But it also depends on whether you have substantial Muslim support or not. So I think the pattern here relatively well reflects that. There are only four low competition states. In Gujarat, according to the 1998 uh, voter exit survey that we have, there were zero uh, Muslim support for the incumbent BJP. I mean, statistically zero. I maybe there was somebody. But, but zero. Um, in Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh, you have figures in the mid-90s for the incumbent Congress party in each state in terms of Muslim support. So each of the parties gets about 95% of the Muslim uh, vote in those states. The Congress parties in each state are very well supported by, um, by the Muslim community, and they respond accordingly. In Andhra Pradesh here, you really have a sort of virtuous circle with both of the major two parties competing heavily for Muslim votes, and they split them about 40-60. So you're in an ideal circumstance in terms of trying to um, explain why the state government does well in protecting uh, Muslims. Um, Bihar is an interesting case. You get, it would be on nobody's list of the best managed states in India, and yet uh, you have no violence uh, of, of a communal kind during this period. West Bengal, you have violence. A little, but this is violence where the police are shooting rioters. I know because I followed up the, um, the individual records. In Rajasthan, same thing. It's police shooting rioters. These are, to the extent you can call them, good deaths, not bad deaths, because it's law and order forces intervening to, pretend, to protect uh, the population from large-scale pogroms. Uh, that's why you have casualties in those states. So I think that the, um, the general pattern in 2002 um, accords reasonably well with this uh, explanation that I put forward. Higher levels of party competition and higher levels of direct Muslim support for your um, political party help explain why uh, states are either assertive or not assertive in um, taking action to protect Muslims. The good news for India is that competition at the state level politically has increased quite substantially over the past 20 years. Um, and the Muslim population, with 13% of the total Indian population, is simply too large a chunk of the electorate in many states to be ignored. Increased uh, Hindu, intra-Hindu competition, especially along caste lines, has had some quite beneficial effects uh, for lowering the communal uh, tension in the country. And then just one more thing before I stop, and that's where the central government is in all of this. So the central government, as I said earlier, under the Indian constitution, can impose emergency rule on individual states. Um, it turns out it's only done this um, in reaction to communal violence five times from 1950 to 1996, um, in which the center dismissed state governments for allowing communal violence to take place. And all of these cases were where the government in the state was opposed to the party uh, or coalition power at the center. So not one 
you know, did Congress take action against the Congress government? It's, it's politics is really driving this. And remember, in 2002, the BJP was in power at the center in New Delhi. And it acted like Congress governments had acted before it, not against its own party. Why would you kick your own party out of power? When control of the state in the run-up to an election gives you all kinds of benefits in the Indian political system. Since 2004, when the new Congress government came in at the state, there has been a change, though. Uh, the Congress has tried to change uh, the perceived incentives for state governments to allow or not to allow uh, communal violence to take place, and has signaled to them that president's rule is a very real option if they allow violence to take place. Um, first, the, you know, the Congress does this in part because it's an overtly secular party. It's also supported by the communists, who have India's best record on preventing anti-Muslim violence. Second, Congress and its major coalition allies, the RJD, the DMK, the CPIM, rely heavily on Muslim votes. So the party has both an ideological and a pragmatic reason to intervene if BJP-run state governments foment or allow communal violence. Prime Minister Singh, whose own uh, Sikh community was heavily victimized at the hands of his own party in 1984 riots in Delhi, is especially sensitive on this issue. And soon after he was appointed, um, he mentioned that we never want to go back and have similar incidents like this again. Um, the different state incentives can be seen, I think, if you look at what happened in the major town of Vadodara in Gujarat in 2006, um, where communal riots broke out in May 2006. Um, the center sent very clear signals to the Narendra Modi government that if you let anything happen this time, President's will is coming. No question. And it had every political reason to do this, the Congress. And the BJP knew it had every political reason to do this. And therefore, it effectively called in the army um, almost immediately to quash the riots, having been warned that the center was only too willing to impose president's rule on the state if it failed to do so. If there's a change in government in the next few years, these incentives may change in between the center and the state. Uh, but uh, you know, at the moment, at least, the, you know, I think this is one way to understand why in last year's elections in Gujarat, you didn't get the same kind of violence that you saw in 2002, because you had a very different party in power at the center that sent very different signals down to the state level. All right, so I'll finish there. Thank you for bearing with me. And Mona. start by kind of uh, these two iconic images of the violence and those of you who are familiar with the, the media reportage of this violence. Um, on the left is uh, a Muslim tailor who's actually begging to kind of be spared by a mob and this is uh, a rioter all riled up in frenzy. And uh, in my talk today I mostly want to talk about what's happened in Gujarat since 2002. As we discuss the state of democracy in Gujarat six years after 2002, I will focus on the marks the violence has left on civil society in the state. How have Muslims and Hindus responded to these events? What sort of a Gujarati society has emerged in the aftermath of 2002? 
Although routine life appears to be peaceful in the past six years, there are enormous physical and psychological boundaries that exist between Hindus and Muslims. Everyday life has wrapped itself around these deep communal divisions while assuming a form of normalcy. The wedge separating the Muslim and Hindu civil societies is most starkly is most starkly exemplified by the proliferation of Muslim ghettos that have become part of Gujarat's physical landscape. This is particularly true in the state's largest city of Ahmedabad, where the bulk of the violence occurred. Although illegal under Indian law, Muslims are not allowed to rent or buy property in Hindu neighborhoods, which has pushed the community into ghettos. Juhapura is the largest of such ghettos in Ahmedabad, with a population of more than 300,000 Muslims. Located on the outskirts of the city, this neighborhood became a safe haven for Muslims from all over Gujarat, who were fleeing to save their lives during the violence in 2002. Since then, it has doubled in size and is still growing. With poor infrastructure and civic amenities, Juhapura looks visibly impoverished compared to the economically booming Hindu areas of Ahmedabad that are dotted with glittering malls, restaurants, and business establishments. So complete is the segregation that people commonly refer to the crossover area between the neighborhoods as the border. In the course of their day-to-day -day lives, Hindus don't cross the border because of the widely held prejudice that these neighborhoods are dangerous war zones where Muslims are roaming around wielding AK-47 guns. Although Muslims also tend to view Hindus with suspicion, those who work in Hindu areas have no choice but to go on the other side for the sake of their livelihood. During my fieldwork, I lived in a Hindu neighborhood where I was constantly warned against going to the Muslim side. I was told that even a truckload of armed policemen cannot return alive from Juhapura. It was hard for me to explain to my Hindu neighbors that I went to Juhapura frequently had wonderful friends there, and that it is nothing close to the kind of criminal danger zone they imagine it to be. I just want to give you a, a sense of what these neighborhoods look like. Um, that, those buildings there is, is the Hindu neighborhood of Vajalpur. This road is leading to, to Juhapura. This is kind of called the border. I mean, people just call it the border. And uh, mostly, there's not much traffic. People who go in and out are usually uh, Muslims who are going to other parts. Hindus almost never cross into this area. Um, this is, a, this is an, a, another ghetto which is kind of emerging in the industrial outback, which is very near to the chief minister's constituency, actually, uh, called Bombay Hotel. It's where there are these industrial processing units, and it's this kind of really uh, uh, underdeveloped area. And you can see these cramped slums and, and small houses. And uh, the kind of people who live here are actually predominantly uh, working class. This is the kind of, kind of drinking water that, that you get um, in these areas. And this is the, the glittering Ahmedabad. You see lots of malls, multiplexes, big highways. This is kind of the Hindu part of Ahmedabad. Uh, so uh, I just want to uh, talk about who are the people who live in these ghettos? What is the Gujarati Muslim like? And how do Muslims view their circumstances? Upon interacting with people in these neighborhoods, one quickly learns that there is no such thing 
as the stereotypical Gujarati Muslim. The Muslim communities in the state are extremely diverse with different educational class, sect and regional backgrounds. For instance, the residents of Juhapura include professors, poor daily wage earners, activists, millionaires, rickshaw drivers, blue-collar industrial laborers, journalists, clerics, lawyers and middle-class business people. These diverse groups of people have nothing in common with each other except their apparent Muslim identity. A Muslim activist who lives in Juhapura told me how much she wished that her young children could grow up in a cosmopolitan environment in the more developed parts of the city. She feared that an entire generation of Muslim children growing up in these communal enclaves is being forced to go to all Muslim schools. As a result, they have never known a single Hindu friend or neighbor as part of their childhood experience. This cannot possibly good for the, be good for the future of our society, she lamented. Likewise, I met a retired professor, Muslim professor of English and Persian literature who enjoyed living in a mixed neighborhood with people from similar professional backgrounds for decades till he and his family were forced to flee their house overnight and move into a Muslim locality when the violence broke out in 2002. He was moved to tears as he reminisced about his house that was burnt and a bygone life of intercultural exchanges. He said, I don't have much in common with my neighbors here. We go to different mosques and have very different worldviews. I feel trapped and uprooted in my own land. I have no choice and nowhere else to go. Others have come to view ghettos as survival strategies. A group of Muslim youth I talked to had accepted their segregation as the most plausible way to live in present-day Gujarat. We don't enjoy it, but it's the only way we can be safe. Because we cannot rely on the state to protect us, our numbers in these ghettos is our only source of safety, they explained to me as a matter of fact. Interestingly, the marginalization of Muslims has thrown up contradictory responses from the minority community. On the one hand is a remarkable rise in educational activities as Muslim trusts have started building modern schools to address the problem of low literacy within the community. As a result, there's been an increased enrollment of Muslim children, particularly girls, in new institutions. Um, I just want to give you uh, some slides here of these kinds of new schools which have been built after 2002 in Muslim neighborhoods by uh, Muslim educational trusts. Um, the FD Trust is the biggest trust in Gujarat. They, they run lots of schools. Um, all of them uh, follow the state board. Uh, most of them are in Gujarati, some in English and some in Urdu. You see a lot of, uh, these are high school girls in one of uh, Ahmedabad's oldest Muslim school, the Anjuwana Islami school. And it's very interesting that because, um, because these, these neighborhoods are so ghettoized now, in fact, parents feel that it's safer to send their girls to schools in the same neighborhood. And so in a kind of perverse way, that has increased the enrollment of girls in schools. Um, <coughs> So on the one hand, there's all these building of new schools and, and, and modern institutions of education. And simultaneously, three prominent Islamic organizations, two of which are conservative, have gained greater access into the Gujarati Muslim community. The Jamaat-e Islami Hind, the Jamiat-e Ulema Hind, and the Tablighi Jamaat have increased their influence among sections of Muslims because in the absence of state support, they provided relief and rehabilitation materials to the victims in 2002. Some of these groups have responded by building new mosques and calling on their co-religionists to become more pious Muslims. 
Others have set up schools and provided vocational education to Muslim youth. As these Muslim organizations compete to increase their following, no single group or leader enjoys the support of the majority of the community. In March 2007, Jamaat-e-Islami-Hind, the most conservative and powerful of Muslim groups, launched a statewide campaign to distribute free copies of the Quran translated in Gujarati. Yet other important Muslim organizations refused to participate in the inaugural event because of ideological differences. A working-class Muslim who identified himself as a Barelvi Sunni told me he would never associate with the activities of the Jamaat-e-Islami because, according to him, they are not real Sunnis but Deobandi conservatives. Another young man declared that he would much rather greet Hindus with Salaam Alaikum than talk with members of the Tablighi Jamaat and Jamaat-e-Islami because, he said, Hindus at least believe in the sacredness of Sufi saints and mausoleums, whereas these other Muslims don't. In fact, internal divisions among Muslims have inhibited them from mobilizing support for their causes, as exemplified by the following event. Last year, the Municipal Corporation of Ahmedabad launched a road development scheme in the Old City that involved demolishing parts of centuries-old mosques to enable the expansion of streets. The local Muslims who offered namaz or prayers in these mausoleums moved the High Court to stop this destruction. However, in their legal petition to save their, these prayer sites, the local Muslims, led by a group called the Sunni Awami Forum, could not even get the support of the two most prominent Islamic organizations in India because of differences in Gujarat, because of differences of opinion about whether mausoleums are Islamic or un-Islamic. So, um, I just want to show you, this is one of, one of the mosques it's called the Rani Sipri Mosque, and part of its wall was actually going to be demolished as, um, for the expansion of roads. This is the inside of a mausoleum. So here you had these Muslim groups trying to organize, but there was really no unity um, you know, in, in trying to get the, gov uh, the, the corporation to actually stop doing that. Um, so um, it is indeed ironical that despite internal divisions among Muslims and their inability to forge alliances across subsects, Hindus continue to fear that Muslims are a united and monolithic force against them. In response to their conceptions of Muslim solidarity, Hindu gurus from various sects are increasingly coming together on common platforms, participating in each other's congregations and emphasizing the unity of their messages. In a press interview last April, the high-profile guru Swami Sachidanan praised Hindus for displaying much-needed aggression and solidarity in attacking Muslims in 2002, because of which he believes Hindus are safer today than they have been in the past. In one of his addresses, another famous guru, Asaram Bapu, told his audience that if there is anything Hindus ought to learn from Muslims, it is their unity and aggression for the sake of their religion. In this way, these gurus insist on emulating Muslim cohesion that simply does not exist in reality. Moreover, the idea of Muslim aggression in the mind of, of the Hindu imaginary seems to think little of the palpable insecurity ordinary Muslims feel when no less than a well-connected Muslim former member of the Indian parliament was hacked and burned to death in front of his house during the violence in 2002. Uh, so you have... Uh, 
you have uh, a lot of these kinds of gurus on the Hindu side who come from various different strands and sects within Hinduism who uh, are very easily climbing each other's platforms and affirming uh, each other's messages in a way that you don't see different Muslim groups coming together uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the Muslim side. Uh, uh, finally, I have emphasized the marginalization of Muslims in Gujarat. Uh, and although I've, I've emphasized that, I want to leave you with another, another thought. That is that there seems to be a project underway in Gujarat that is not so much about challenging an imagined Muslim cohesion as it is about building a particular kind of Hindu polity. Perhaps this newfound conf Hindu confidence and solidarity that exists alongside a beleaguered Muslim psyche is best displayed on the national highway that connects Ahmedabad to Gujarat's capital of Gandhinagar. The highway, lined on both sides with sprawling malls and opulent temples belonging to different Hindu sects, also leads to the Muslim ghetto, barely 10 miles away. This emergent skyline of Gujarat is not simply a story of class divisions between rich Hindus and poor Muslims. Rather, it is emblematic of the social contours of a state where the politics of boundaries has strayed dangerously far from the parameters of the Indian constitution. And I just want to end here with Shabnam demonstrating um, in uh, Gujarat. In, in, I think this was last <coughs> April. And, um, and I, I think we can discuss more about this uh, later on in the discussion about what democracy, what kinds of spaces democracy leaves open uh, for dissent and contestation, even in a place like Gujarat. So, yeah. <coughs> Thank you, Mona and Stevens. Very interesting. Uh, presentations, both of them. Uh, friends, I think I would quickly take you uh, backwards uh, into history. And I really apologize uh, because I am sure that half of you already know about it. But I think it's important to talk about this. Uh, when India um, uh, gained freedom after the freedom struggle, during that period there were, as you know, there was partition. One part of India became Pakistan. and India remained. And uh, there were these two streams, one within the Muslim uh, fundamentalist groups led by Jinnah, the two-nation theory, which said that Muslims are a, are a separate nation. And uh, there were a chunk of Muslims who followed them and went to Pakistan. Majority of the Muslims remained in India. But within India, the Hindu Mahasabha, the Hindu fundamentalist organization, the right-wing organization, which said that Muslims and Hindus are two nations, but they never thought of partitioning India. They said it, it has to be one country where Muslims have to live as second-class citizens, as the younger brothers. And uh, though India was conceived as a, a secular democratic country, and uh, most of the people who remain in India uh, from all religions, they very strongly believed in that. But the right-wing forces, the initially the uh, Hindu Mahasabha and then which RSS, they branched into many more, they continued to work in India. They were responsible for killing Gandhi. Uh, at that point, RSS was banned. RSS is Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is the mother organization of all the right-wing organizations, Hindu right-wing organizations in India. 
but they were unable to expand too much till we come to the 1990s 1990 when uh, the then home minister adwani decided to take this rath yatra to ayodhya to claim that the babri mosque which was demolished later on was the birth place for lord rama that was the period which is the turning point in india's history uh, in terms of its communal history and which was able to catch the imagination of the people and the right wing was able to mobilize uh, general people in huge numbers and what the st what started in 1990s the politics of hatred and division it it was there but it was not at such a big scale earlier that almost reached its culmination in 2002 in gujarat and between 1990s and till today uh, the right wing forces including the rss the bjp the uh, bajrang dal shiv sena there are thousands of these organizations now i mean literally thousands of these organizations they have different names they uh, are spread across the country and they are in every section of the society they very systematically penetrated different areas also we see uh, that this uh, rise of the right wing is very very much connected with the process of globalization and neoliberalism because as uh, the state started withdrawing from people's lives uh, it left more and more spaces open for the right wing to operate in for example if we look at education there was the amount of funds spent on education were reduced from 4% to 2% to then it became lesser than that absolutely opening the possibilities of the right wing to open their shishu mandirs and vidya mandirs and now they exist in thousands i mean i think it will be they'll cross probably 100000 schools across india uh, by different names they would be ekal vidyalayas they would be uh, vidya bharatis shishu mandirs and so on which teach hatred from the uh, class 1 onwards i won't go into all that because i'm sure that a lot of people would know about it i mean the, the what is taught in these schools and all that but the right wing very successfully invaded almost every section almost every space in the country today as we uh, stand here uh, i might mm, sound very alarmist but the uh, the facts are that i personally do not give more than 5 years to indian democracy within 5 years fascism will take over and it is taking over it is invading every section whether it is your judiciary whether it is your police military education culture bureaucracy everywhere rss has penetrated and penetrated very deeply it has penetrated not only in india but it has penetrated in your campuses uh the indian diaspora the amount of organizations right wing organizations that preach hatred that are working on us campuses is unimaginable the amount of funds which are sent from here to support these hate spreading machinery is also unimaginable there have been a number of studies in us and uk both 
exposing uh, this kind of funding and, and exposing the most recent uh, study being on the Hindu Student Council, which is the RSS body which works in the students among the students in the in the U.S. Uh, as the right wing started growing in India and capturing more and more spaces, they uh, decided and they that Gujarat is going to be their laboratory, and they openly declared it. They said Gujarat is the laboratory of the Hindutva experiment, and the ways of spreading hatred were perfected in Gujarat. They have been perfected in Gujarat. That time is over when Gujarat was happening only in Gujarat. Now they are being exported across India. What was happening in Gujarat in 2002 is happening today in Odisha, in Madhya Pradesh, in Rajasthan, in Karnataka, in Kerala, and happening at a very, very fast pace. Their modus operandi has always been, I mean, once they have invaded the hearts and the minds of the people, that during an attack, there are five, six things which they do. Some of it, both uh, my friends talked about. The first is totally breaking the economic bone of the minorities. So whatever they have, any kinds of businesses, shops, uh, whether big or small, whichever, that is attacked and burned down and destroyed. The second is attacking their homes. So wherever the minorities live, whether Muslims or Christians, the attacks are equally on Christians also. 2002 was especially Muslims, but before that, after that, Christians have been attacked in a very uh, big way and huge numbers. Then attacking what is considered the honor of a community, the women. And I would take a few minutes talking about that because in 2002, I reached in the first week in Gujarat and all I did about, uh, apart from relief uh, and rehabilitation in the uh, camps, I documented the uh, sexual violence which happened against women across seven districts in Gujarat. I had covered at that point about 35 villages, uh, villages where nobody had gone, cases which no one knows about, which were not reported anywhere. According to my estimate, there were at least 400 gang rapes during that first week itself. And if you look at the pattern, if you look at the pattern of what was happening, probably you have heard of one Kosarbano. Uh, now, after the Tehelka expose, uh, the person who did that himself has admitted that he cut her womb, took out the unborn child and threw it in the fire. But I have with my own eyes seen photographs of over 10 women under the similar conditions of the fetus sticking to the womb, cut womb and the body burnt. If you look, look at the pattern of what was happening, and which happened within the first three days. So all theories of reaction, you will realize, are absolutely bogus and were absolutely bogus. Uh, all over Gujarat, this happened in seven districts. There were gas cylinders which were used and petrol bombs which were used and manufactured within the homes of the right-wing Hindu families. Women were also part of uh, making those petrol bombs. In fact, if you have seen uh, 
yeah the 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 film uh, i don't know if you have seen that it's called evil stocks the land by gohar raza there you can see women making those uh, bombs and handing them over to men to be uh, which were used during 2002 you see there are villages where women are still cooking on cow dungs or cooking on wood even on those villages gas cylinders were used and petrol bombs were used if you look at the pattern of the attacks on women you see the same pattern women were uh, brought out from their homes huddled together uh, groups of 10 15 in one place even up to 38 women they were stripped naked every single cloth from their body they were made to run mobs following them for kilometers and after that they they were gang raped their breast cut off all kinds of iron rods and um, wooden sticks stuck in their bodies and this did not happen in one place this happened i have personally documented this happening in six seven different districts and this kind of brutality one has never heard of these were not ordinary gujaratis these were these were not ordinary gujarati citizens who were doing these to women they were trained to do what they did to women and they were trained over a period of time so that was the second kind of attack which comes during uh, when a community is being attacked and this is happening with the christians also i am not talking only of muslims here the third thing is attacking the religious symbols there were over 268 mosques and dargahs which were torn down using petrol bombs during 2002 uh, and uh, after 2002 what uh, i think mona talked about and also steven talked about uh, talked about was the uh, baroda riot which happened around the dargah in the name of broadening the road they wanted to destroy and demolish this 300 year old dargah which existed in baroda even before the Uh, the roads or the city started building up so any cultural symbol any re- religious symbol of the minorities is attacked in when when christians are being attacked then churches are being burned down bibles are being burned down in when muslims are being attacked then dargahs and uh, mosques are being attacked the rani chipri mosque about which mona talked that's uh, one of the most beautiful heritage buildings in ahmedabad and a very old building uh, it was it has been on their uh, map to destroy that and it was actually not the muslims who saved it they were the uh, heritage lovers the secular strongly secular uh, small though very small but that secular hindu um, community within ahmedabad which stood at the gates for days together and saw to it that Uh, the state does not touch that mosque and apart from this i mean these kind of attacks uh, what continues this happens during riots where which uh, which immediately gain the attention of a lot of people whether civil society as well as, uh, as other countries within the country political forces but what is more dangerous is the low intensity violence which goes on and goes on every single day now low intensity violence has become an everyday affair in the life of minorities in india and it is not only gujarat it is i am talking of a lot of other states where it is happening 
uh, what happens in low intensity violence are for example there, there are many ways of doing it for example during the election period uh, it was i think september october uh, yes around october we got calls from surat district we were told that there are five villages which have been burnt down next early morning uh, me and another colleague we rushed to that space although uh, i spoke to almost everyone in the police i spoke to all the political leaders including the congress leaders who were running for elections the leader of the opposition and leaders in delhi and everyone told me not to worry everything was under control but since the people were calling us we decided to go there and after reaching there we realized that there were five villages which were totally burned down every single muslim house was burned down in a mosque which is in a place called kim char rasta when i entered that place which was attacked by the police not by a mob but by the police it was the floor was splattered with blood and all the windows uh, they were totally broken and despite many many calls to uh, the police commissioners to the people in charge to the congress leaders nothing happened it was i mean after a desperate attempt that i decided then to intervene at the central level i asked my office i dictated a whole report asked them to send it to mrs gandhi immediately and it was only after she intervened that the congress leadership moved in delhi so uh, when uh, steven was saying that many times congress uh, it is under the congress rule this has happened uh that's true it has happened many many times under the congress rule but now the difference between earlier times and and 2007 is that when you see when you start communalizing a society it does not get communalized in sections it the the process affects everyone and we today we do not have any political force whom you can call secular most of the congress itself is so highly communal there is no difference between their way of thinking and bjp's way of thinking so uh, it is very difficult to say that who is going to save uh, the country who is going to save democracy and what is happening in india who is going to fight against the right wing forces there are groups like anhat which is just a very very tiny group which tries to do whatever we can and there are i would say thousands of groups like ours across india these are civil society groups which are doing very intensive work which are doing very meaningful work and also making a difference but all of us put together cannot match the scale at which uh, which needs to be met uh, we are like not even 1% of what is required to be done in india at the right at, at this moment and uh, the situation looks very very bleak it looks very very bleak right now um i would just take two more minutes to tell you because i know that a lot of you uh, would not believe what i'm saying because what you hear from the newspapers what you hear from the media what you hear from your governments from indian governments is very different everyone thinks india is blooming shining yes it is shining for the 15% uh the latest report i don't know if some of you have seen uh of the national commission uh on the enterprises on uh, the unorganized sector has shown that 316 million p 
people which make the which makes 76 percent of the workforce in India earn less than 49 cents a day earn less than 20 rupees a day so uh, there are 75 percent of India's population literally starving uh, on the verge of uh, committing suicides there have been more than uh, uh, 100,000 farmers who have committed suicides in the last five six years there are more than 21 million people who have been displaced either uh, the urban poor or uh, the tribals. 55% people uh, of the displaced people are tribals in India due to different development projects, the so-called development projects. If building uh, uh, roads and malls and uh, uh, stadiums and building flyovers is development, it is for the middle upper middle classes, it is development, but not for the poor of the of the country who are uh, suffering both at the hands of the communal fascist forces as well as forces of globalization and the multinationals who are uh, entering the country at, at a ruthless speed. Uh, on 28th, which was the sixth anniversary of Gujarat, we released this uh, book called Rise of Fascism. This is, uh, uh, this book has testimonies of 300 victims from across 17 states in India. Uh, not all the states, but 17 states. And each testimony will uh, speaks in itself uh, that how fascist forces are taking over. These are testimonies of victims as well as activists. And these cover almost every area. There are people talking about judiciary, uh, the invasion of RSS in the judiciary. There are people talking about police, people talking about education about almost about every sector in India. And if some of you have the time, although there were only two, three copies which I could bring, uh, I would definitely would like to donate one copy to the library here and would request you to go through this to understand the gravity of what is happening in India. And my request is that uh, sitting here, it's not much that people can do what is happening in India. A lot of people think that they can uh, donate money. Yes, donating money is the easiest. But I would say that if uh, right-wing has to be fought, if fascism has to be fought, it cannot be fought with foreign money. It has to be fought with Indian money and with Indian people living there. But what you can do is to see what is happening on your campuses. Because it is not only uh, the Indian population which is going to be affected. The fact that large number of Hindu right-wing organizations spreading hatred, deep-seated hatred, uh, are working on your campuses. It is going to affect the whole uh, society as a whole. And your future generations, this generation, um, I think uh, probably uh, you can refer to the recent report on the Hindu Students' Council's activities in the US, in the campuses. It should be available, probably Samip can uh, help in locating that. It is online also. Uh, I think I'll end there. Thank you very much. If there are any questions to any of us, we would be happy to answer. Thank you.